According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Ephesians chapter 2. We're making good progress in verses 11 through 22, although we do kind of still seem to be stuck in verse 12, but we're going to we're going to gain some ground today, I believe, and I want to make sure we're solid on this so that we can move forward. To me, this is a very exciting concept when we view the dispensational distinctions between the stewardship of Israel and the stewardship of the church and how transformative it is in in uh, the first century when it happened and how groundbreaking and new and, and, and all these things that, that the early church was just beginning to, to get grip, to grips with. And uh, this is why he's writing these verses in, in 11 through 22. And uh, I think the sooner we start viewing this contrast dispensationally, we, we do ourselves some great favors in this chapter and in the next. When we get into chapter 3, and he, Paul starts to speak to the mystery doctrine that he had previously written on. He had written on the mystery doctrine in Colossians. He'd hinted at some elements of mystery doctrine in, in, in uh, uh, Galatians, for example, when he says there's no Jew or Gentile, male or female. And so there's elements of mystery doctrine that Paul has been getting more and more solid on uh, through the years of his ministry. But now when he reaches this point in Ephesians and he starts to spell it out this way, I think he takes it to a, to a significant place. And we want, to, uh, we want to see what he has on this. So that's why I'm taking a little bit of a slower approach to verses 11 and 12. And then I think it's going to pay the dividends when we get to verses 13 and following. So all that being said, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study this morning. Let's make sure we are in the spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, having confessed our sins, being restored to fellowship, and humble under the authority of Bible doctrine. Shall we pray? Most gracious Holy Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this time together and uh, looking forward to feasting upon the meat of your word, Father. I thank you that you've designed your word with with uh, milk. You've designed your word with meat. Uh, you've provided for every age group of believers from newborns, babes that were just recently saved, all the way to the most mature believers among us, Father. And as we sink our teeth into this meat here this morning, I thank you. For God the Holy Spirit who guides us into all things, even the deep things of God. So we uh, thank you for this teaching and thank you for being faithful. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we have a contrast here of formerly and now. The formerly that's mentioned in verse 11 and verse 13, and then the now that's mentioned there in verse 13. So we have the formerly and we have the now. And we're paying attention to this because we're observing again and again, overwhelmingly, that this is different from the formerly and the now message that was in verses 1 through 10. And uh, you're probably going to be sick of hearing this, but you're going to get it at least two or three more times, that the formerly and the now message in verses 1 through 10 were entirely different. What you used to be is that you used to be dead. And what you formerly did was you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And that's true for the readers, and that's true, Paul says, for, for himself. That's true for every born-again believer. Every born-again believer in the world used to be an unbeliever. 
And so every individual believer can look back to that time before they got saved and they can thank God that they, got, that they are saved and that God remedied the, uh, the problem that they had as unbelievers. And so the problem that they had is that they were dead. And God looked at that and said, okay, that's a problem. <laughs> They're spiritually dead. They're dead in Adam. And that's, uh, that's uh, a positional estate that he had them in that was the consequence of Adam's original sin where God assigned uh, spiritual death to all of Adamic humanity. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And that's the summary of verses 1 through 10. You used to be dead, but God made you alive. And he did so through his grace through faith, provision of salvation. And it's, it's just a, a, a wonderful text, a sweet text, a powerful text. We can use it in our witnessing. We can use it in so many different ways. That's verses 1 through 10. You were dead. God made you alive. Okay? You were dead, and that was a problem. And God provided the remedy to that problem. The remedy for spiritual death is spiritual life. And so your dead, deadness problem is dealt with. You now have spiritual life. The, the problem has a remedy, and it's great moving forward. Okay, But that's not the contrast in verses 11 through 22. Because we're going to see that these problems, if we, if we keep thinking of them as problems, then we need to readjust and, and stop considering them as problems. Because God does not remedy any of these problems. Problems. They're actually not problems. They're features, right? They're, uh, they're features of what it means to be a Gentile in the Old Testament. What it means to be a Gentile uh, prior to the, uh, the coming of the church, prior to the, the day of Pentecost. And they're not problems, and he remedies none of them. Okay? And so even starting with the idea of uncircumcision, is that a problem? What's the problem with being uncircumcised? If you're a Gentile, that's what you are. All right? It's not a problem. It would only be a problem if they were Jews. If they were uncircumcised Jews, then that'd be a problem. And uh, because they'd be in defiance of, of the expectations. They'd be in defiance of the, uh, the covenant pr- uh, stipulations. They'd be in defiance of Mosaic law. And their stewardship, they would be in defiance of their stewardship responsibilities. But it's not a problem for a Gentile to be uncircumcised. What's the problem with that? Okay. Likewise, to be separate from Christ. To uh, is that a problem? That's a feature. Okay. Is that something that had to be remedied? See, like the remedy of spiritual death by making you spiritually alive, he remedied a problem. But that was the first paragraph. That's not this paragraph. He's not remedying these problems because these aren't problems. These are features of the Gentile position during the Jewish stewardship of the Old Testament. And so being uncircumcised is not a problem. Just like being circumcised is not, is not the solution to the uncircumcised problem. See, it's not a problem to be a Gentile and then try to become a Jew to solve a problem doesn't fix the problem. So, separate from Christ. And we're going to walk through all of these elements here this morning. And I've got notes to take us through all of these. And I just want to um, kind of give the big picture before we start getting into uh, into these issues. We're going to get into 
Here it comes. In main point two, I spelled out all of these issues with A, B, C, D, and E. And so we're going to go through them one by one, and we're going to demonstrate that they're not problems to be remedied. They were features of the Gentile stewardship before the church. And the contrast is not in remedying each of these problems and and turning these Gentiles into Jews. The solution is the new stewardship that is the church age. The new body of Christ that is neither Jew nor Gentile. Because these aren't problems, these are features. And the Gentile features are what they are. And the Jewish features are what they are. And both groups now are being made into one new man in which all of these features are now irrelevant. And we don't, we don't try to solve them as if they're problems, like being spiritually dead and now being spiritually alive. That solved a problem. But none of these are problems that have to be solved. And so when you think about, again, uh, these uncircumcised Gentiles, now that they're in the church, do they have to get circumcised? No, of course not. We have Galatians and we have uh, so many other passages, Acts 15, where they resolve that at the, at the Jerusalem conference, that these Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. What would the point of that be? They're not Jews. They're not under the Mosaic law. They're not under the Jewish covenants. Quit trying to put them under the Jewish covenants. Likewise, uh, excluded from or separate from Christ. The Christ was given to Israel. Jesus Christ was born a Jew according to the flesh. That's not a problem for the Gentiles. Right? It's, not, it's not a deficiency that the Gentiles then have to say, well, how do we solve this? And let's, let's get our own Messiah. Let's get our own Christ. Is, is God going to send a Gentile Messiah to remedy the, the Gentiles' lack of Messiah? No. The only design was to send a Jewish Messiah. And that Jewish Messiah is the one that accomplishes the work that benefits all of humanity. So the, the lack of Messiah is not a problem that has to be remedied. Likewise, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, the polity of Israel, the, the political governance of the, uh, the state of Israel. That's not a problem for the Gentiles. The, the Gentiles had no problem being Gentiles, and it wasn't a problem that had to be solved or remedied or to take them away from being Greeks or Romans or Lydians or whatever they were, uh, whatever their ethnicity was in, uh, in Ephesus uh, and their citizenship, even though Ephesus was not a Roman colony, many of the, of the inhabitants of Ephesus were in fact Roman citizens. But the, it's not a problem to be solved by giving them Jewish citizenship by making them citizens of the, of the polity of Israel. It's not a solution, because it's not a problem. Likewise, the covenants of promise. The Gentiles were not under the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. All right? And, and that's not a problem. They weren't supposed to be. If it was a problem, then, then uh, God would have put the Gentiles under those covenants, but he never did. Those covenants were given to Israel, which we're studying right now in the Genesis class because we're, we're focusing on Abraham and the life of Abraham presently. And that Abrahamic covenant was for Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not a problem to be a stranger to the covenants of promise. And it's not a problem to be solved like spiritual death was solved by giving them spiritual life 
not being party to these covenants was not a problem to be solved by all of a sudden taking them and putting them under the covenants. That's not what happened when the church age began, and that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not a problem to be solved. It's a feature of what it was, what it used to be. And it's not a feature of what we have today. So stop thinking of all these as problems, disadvantages to the Jew and adva- or to the Gentile, advantages to the Jew. The Jew had tremendous advantages. But these are features that we're looking at throughout this paragraph. Likewise, uh, no national hope. Uh, likewise, no national God. Uh, the, the one true God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the one true God, the creator God of the universe, is the God of Israel, not the God of the Gentiles. In Ephesus, their, their local god was Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. She had a huge temple, and it brought in all kinds of pilgrims every year, and it brought in all kinds of money every year. It was a very lucrative uh, place. And they had uh, silversmiths that made a lot of money there, manufacturing these little idol figurines, these little idols, silver idols of, uh, of Artemis. And it was big money. But they were godless, because Artemis isn't real. Right? Ar- Artemis is a fallen angel or a demon, a false god, goddess, as the case may be. And, uh, and so the Ephesians were godless, without God in the world, because Artemis isn't real. And the one true God is the God of Israel. So uh, is this, again, this is a feature. And the remedy is uh, it's not a remedy. What this passage is talking about is not talking about solving problems and providing remedies. This passage is describing what the estate used to be before the church age and what the estate is now in Christ. What the blessings are now that the church age has begun. And so, if we can, if we can focus on this, let me just draw pictures and diagram things. This, um, from Alpha to Omega overview, with the angels, with man, or Gentiles, with Israel, with the church, this, this dispensational scheme. Understand the church is not the end. Uh, we're, we're very finite. In fact, our church age can end today. A trumpet can sound and we'll be raptured out of here and the church is over at that moment. Nobody else will join the church after that because the bride will be complete. And so Israel will be restored to their stewardship and they still have a future tribulation to endure and a future millennial kingdom to enjoy. And uh, those future blessings of Israel are still on the way. We're not there yet. But start to think, have you ever thought about how um, unique the church actually is just in terms of how it started? Just in terms of what it did? How earth-shattering? I mean, it shook windows, it shook rooms, it shook when the Holy Spirit descended and it filled those believers in the upper room, the place shook. It was, it was world-transforming. Because you had 120 in the upper room, I think they were all Jewish, if, if not mostly Jewish, they were all Jewish probably, in that upper room. But when they, when they received the Holy Spirit and they were baptized in a personal union with Jesus Christ, when they were given their heavenly citizenship, and the new creation that they have in Christ as a new man, they weren't Jews anymore. Okay? Oh, sure, ethnically they still were ethnically Jewish, and and, uh, uh, sexually they were still male and female. But in Christ, as a new creation, 
They were neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. And these are some of the details we've got to start seeing. Now, this, this unique thing has never happened before in the history of the world. You know, back up 2,000 years, when God called Abraham, and when God uh, ended the dispensation of Gentiles and began a new stewardship, think about how that, that wasn't a day of Pentecost moment. Think about how gradual that was over hundreds of years. Because Abraham had to give birth to Isaac. Isaac had to give birth to Jacob. Jacob had to give birth to 12 sons, who then became the the heads of their tribes. And then 400 years after that, Moses gave them the law. So there was a considerable time frame in which the adjustment from the Gentiles to the Jews um, took place over a, a lengthy stretch of time. So much so that Abraham is still encountering Jewish believers Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, Gentile believers that were prophets and priests and kings. He encounters Melchizedek, who's a Gentile uh, priest, king-priest of, of El Elyon, God Most High. He finds a Midianite priest. Jethro was the priest of Midian. And uh, marries his daughter, Zipporah. And you have these Gentiles that are still... The, the final remnants of Gentiles that even though the stewardship has been transferred to the Jewish people, the Jewish people are not yet established in their commonwealth, in their political land with their boundaries and their, and their role that they are designed to do. That took a couple hundred years. So this was a very different transition between the Gentiles and the Jews. And likewise, between the angels and humanity, <laughs> there was a transition there. It was called... Tohu Wabohu, the destruction of the angelic earth. It was called uh, the transition with the, the restoration of the earth for humanity and the creation of Adam and Eve and, and, and the, um, I think, the uh, locking of angels into their invisible spiritual realm so that they can only interact with humanity uh, here and there on, in, in temporary ways um, to, to even be visible, to even be tangible in this physical universe uh, is is not a normal thing for the angels. So, as, just as you think your way through, dispensationally now, the transition from angels to humanity, the tra- the transition from Gentiles to Jews, okay, um, nothing like the day of Pentecost has ever happened before. Nothing like a whole new creation coming into existence, such as happened at the day of Pentecost. This is earth-shattering. And for something like this to happen, don't you think it requires some biblical information? That it requires some instructions? That it requires some revelation to be given to the new stewards? And that's what we have here in Ephesians chapter 2. We have it here and it continues in chapter 3. And we have, I think, a very clear uh, blessing to describe then and now as, uh, as we have the formerly... I've got to color these... And um, color that green. There we go. And the now. Because that formerly and now is the difference between the dispensation of Israel and the dispensation of the church. The formerly is before Pentecost. The now is after Pentecost. Before Pentecost and after Pentecost. That's the formerly and the now. 
and, and realize how new this is. I think we lose track of this because we were all born, most of us, in the 20th century. Okay, It's even possible for some of us to have been born in the 21st century. We've got a, a few here this morning, and God bless you. Okay, But even so, 20th, 21st century believers, we are so separated from then, from formerly. We have no living memory, no concept for a, a dispensation in which you had Gentiles excluded from the Jewish stewardship. Think how inclusive our stewardship is. The moment you're saved, you have every advantage of every other believer on the planet. The very moment you're saved, and, and you're still a babe in Christ, you haven't learned any doctrine, but you have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you have a spiritual gift, you are a new creation in Christ, you have a heavenly citizenship, you are neither Jew nor Gentile, male or female, bond or free. You have every position as a steward that everybody else, every other believer in the world also has. It's, it's such a, a, a universal access that we have in our stewardship in the church age. It wasn't like that before. There was enmity, there was hostility, there was a barrier between the stewards and the non-stewards. That's what we're going to see is been done away with now that the church age has begun. And it's a beautiful thing. And so nothing like this ever happened before and really won't really happen again, uh, although without sudden changes like we're going to have with the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, there will be some, some adjustments there, clearly. But the, uh, and the rapture, the rapture of the church whereby we depart and, and all of the stewardship responsibilities revert back to Israel. And all of these features, not problems, all of these features for Gentile humanity, they return after the rapture. Once again, these features of Gentile humanity will be features of the future Gentile humanity after the rapture of the church. So let's start dealing with this, okay? Any questions? I guess we've got questions and answers on Wednesday night. We got the opportunity to explore this some more. Also, I am so thrilled. Part of why I'm so jazzed about this is because at 2.30 this afternoon, we are beginning a brand new class on dispensations. And so uh, we wrapped up Systematic Theology last week, Volume 1. And before we get to Volumes 2, 3, and 4, we're going to take about 15 weeks to teach a comprehensive study on dispensations and the difference between Jews and Gentiles and church, the difference between angelity and humanity, the whole plan and program of God from Alpha to Omega. And it's going to be, a, I think it's a very opportune time to, uh, to have these classes coinciding the way that they are. So I'm, I'm pretty excited, pretty jazzed about that. All right, so let's, um, let's highlight some things here. I guess the last thing that we deal with in main point one is, is point F here. Prior to the creation of the church, so it's before the day of Pentecost of 33 A.D., okay, if you want to give it a, a Gregorian date, I think it's May 25th or May 24th, something like that, of, uh, of 33 A.D., Prior to the creation of the church, Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms, identified by physical birth and entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. Let that sink in. Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms, 
identified by physical birth. Okay, If your parents were Jews, you're a Jew. Specifically, if your father was a Jew, you are a Jew. I know they switched to matrilineal record-keeping in the Middle Ages, but biblically, it was always patrilineal in their identification with the father, with the tribe, with the, with the, uh, the, the family clan tribe and nation of Israel. And so, uh, and then a Gentile was simply a Gentile, identified with their ethnicity, the people group that, that they descended from. Again, patrilineal, part of that uh, patriarchy that Satan hates so much. And entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. I tell you, that blows the mind when you start to think about it. Because we're so spoiled in the church age where you can't even become a steward in the church age until you are born again. It's the salvation experience that causes you to, to be a, a member of the body of Christ. That, play, that gives, you, gives you a part of the royal family of God. And so nobody that's unsaved has a stewardship blessing in, the, in this current church age. But that was not the case prior to Pentecost. That the Jewish people had the, the, the earthly stewardship that they had regardless of whether they were saved or not. And you could be king, you could be high priest, you could be, you could be a part of the Jewish nation. In fact, you could have all of these advantages here. You could be circumcised, you could have Jewish citizenship, you had a, a coming Messiah on the way, you, um, you uh, were party to the Abrahamic and, uh, covenant, and the Davidic covenant and the New Covenant, you had all the covenants. You had uh, the hope of, of a national future. And the, the creator God of the universe was your nation's God, was your people's God. You had everything in this paragraph, and you didn't even have to be saved to have any of that. It's just what you were given by being a Jew. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, you know, you're not even saved. You must be born again. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he was a teacher of Israel. He was a, he was a, a, a significant leader in, within the Sanhedrin, within the ruling uh, class of the Jewish people. But he wasn't even saved. So salvation or lack of salvation is not a barrier to their stewardship duties. They, their stewardship was quite a bit different from our stewardship in a lot of ways. Theirs being earthly, ours being heavenly. I mean, there's many other contrasts that we will be uh, spelling out in our upcoming dispensationalism class. And likewise, was there anything in these, we call them disadvantages, but they're, they're just features, okay? Features of the Gentile estate. Was there anything in there that kept them from getting saved? Not at all. An individual Gentile could certainly get saved. He could, uh, Uriah the Hittite and Ruth the Moabitess and, and all kinds of Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian. There's all kinds of Gentiles got saved. Cornelius was a Gentile that was saved before the day of Pentecost. And he crossed into the church in Acts chapter 10. So all of these Gentiles got saved and being uncircumcised didn't keep that from happening and not having Jewish citizenship didn't keep that from happening and God didn't have to send a, a, a a Moabite Christ in order for Ruth to get saved. Okay, there was no Moabite Christ, but Ruth still got saved. So, Gentiles and Jews functioned in widely different realms, identified by physical birth, and entirely unrelated to any born-again salvation experience. 
That's different than what we have today. All right? The Jews were the chosen people and had every Jewish advantage regardless of whether they were even saved. I mean, Judas Iscariot. He was Jewish. He had every advantage this paragraph talks about, but he was not born again. Gentile nations had every disadvantage, even when individuals among them happened to get saved. Didn't remedy any of those deficiencies, because they're not deficiencies, they're not problems. They're features of the Gentile estate. So, with that established, let's start looking at these five uh, elements. At that time... Remember, any time we have the word time, we want to ask ourselves, is this chronos time? Is it kairos time? The two primary words for time is this is kairos. It speaks to the opportune time. It speaks to the significance of what that time indicates as opposed to the precise chronology that's uh, not really relevant here. But you are at that chronos, I'm sorry, that kairos. You are at that kairos. At that opportune time. And it was at that time. But now it's even more opportune for us. Okay, You are at that Kairos opportune time. You are separate, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless, and far off. I'm going to steal far off from verse 13. Okay, The other five come in verse 12. The sixth one comes in verse uh, 13. And if you insist on having a seventh one, then uh, back up to verse 11 and, and use uncircumcision. Okay, And if you back up and get uncircumcision, then you get seven. Seven features of Gentile humanity, seven features of Jewish humanity. These aren't problems to be solved, but they are a contrast with what used to be and what is now. What used to be Israel's stewardship, but what is now the church's stewardship. So this catalog of Gentile disadvantage has a similar catalog of Jewish advantage in the book of Romans. So let's just, um, I think we can appreciate this uh, both in the Ephesian sense and in the Roman sense. There's a huge debate um, because for centuries now it's always been assumed that Romans was written first. That Romans was written uh, uh, during the third missionary journey from Corinth and that Ephesians and all the prison epistles actually were not written until Paul's Roman imprisonment in, uh, in Acts 27. And uh, the issue is there. We're, we've tweaked that a bit. We have, a, I think, a, an improved chronology on that. That means that Ephesians preceded Romans in the, in the time frame of being written. Either way, though, doesn't really affect uh, any doctrine. And uh, I think it just helps to maybe color some nuances into Romans that we can appreciate more if we, we think that Ephesians came first. And this could be very one of them right here, this uh, catalog of Jewish advantages. So, um, alienated, uh, separate, alienated, strangers, hopeless, godless. Okay? Just try to memorize that. Uh, good luck. All right. Um, but you have these, these five or six or seven different features that the Gentiles didn't have, the Jews had. Okay? And far off. This catalog of disadvantage had a similar catalog of Jewish advantage. Paul records it in Romans chapter 9. So we can take a look at that. This is, uh, remember, 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans. These three chapters form a significant, um, the Latin term is excursus, which is a fancy academic way of saying rabbit trail, okay? Side trip. 
And, and you have uh, Romans chapters 1 through 8, and then Romans chapters uh, 12 through 16. But right in the middle of there, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is, uh, is a block of, of, of powerful doctrine that relates to Israel, that answers this question, is God done with Israel? Now that we're in the church age, what do we think about Israel? How do we relate to Jewish people? What's, what's the future of Israel? Is that now thrown away? Again, that's why I believe this has to be the follow-up to Ephesians and not the other way around. So, um, Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And this is uh, is pretty blunt the way he spells this out. He's being honest about the grief that he has. He's saddened by... The, the Jewish rejection of the Christ. You know, and he, and he has an inside view on that because he was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, he understands the arrogance and the evil and the, the tremendous darkness that was festering in that religious body. And so he's, he's grieved over this. And, and remember, this is still living memory. This is 23 years after the fact. Okay? I believe Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D. And Ephesians is being written in 56 A.D., Ballpark, 62 at the very latest, if you want to insist on that Roman uh, authorship of, of, uh, of these prison epistles. But either 23 years or 29 years, either way, understand how short that is. Understand how recent that is. Most of us in this room can remember 23 years ago. All right? Assuming you were born then. Most of us can remember what we were doing in 2001. I was already pastor of this church. I was getting ready, I was gearing up for our first through the Bible year in 2002. Alright, and so we can remember where we were 23 years ago. We can remember what things were like 23 years ago. It's not, it's not a stretch. And if something as momentous as the day of Pentecost and the beginning of the church age, if you were alive at that time, you would never forget it. If you had memory of what it was like before the church, you would never forget it. That's why the imperative comes in Ephesians 2.11 to remember. To remember and keep on remembering and never forget what the dispensations were like before the church started. And so Paul had great grief, great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. That means unsaved. That means going to a lake of fire for all eternity. Paul would willingly trade his own salvation for the, the whole Jewish nation if he could. That I myself were a curse, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I mean, do you understand how sacrificial this agape love is? If he would surrender his own eternal life to save the Jewish people? It's mind-boggling to me. It's like uh, when, when in uh, Lazarus and the rich man and, and Abraham's describing the, the bosom and the, ga- the chasm in between there. And he says, we can't cross over, you can't cross over here, we can't cross over there. Which, that boggles my mind too. I'm like, what kind of moron would want to cross over there? Would leave the place of comfort and go to the place of torments? That's, that seems dumb, that seems stupid. I mean, who would do that? But now we're starting to see Paul would have done it. Maybe others would have done it too. Willing to suffer for the sake of others. That's, that's the definition of agape love. Anyway, this is Paul's expression here. 
So when he mentions these things, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And I think that's useful for us too. Because remember, even though Paul is a believer, he's a church-age saint, he is now in the body of Christ, he is positionally neither Jew or Gentile. But still, ethnically, nothing happened to his DNA. He didn't get a genetic racial transplant uh, when he got when he was ushered into the body of Christ on the Damascus Road. All right. So he still has kinsmen according to the flesh. We still have earthly biological families in addition to our spiritual heavenly family that we have, right? In some cases, uh, we're, we're very happy to have the, the spiritual heavenly family that we have in Christ. Uh, in many cases, that earthly biological family can be pretty, um, yeah, <laughs> dysfunctional, right? We put the fun in dysfunctional. Uh, but that's, the, that's in the biological realm. So, kinsmen according to the flesh. Keep that in mind, because when we talk about neither male or female, neither Jew or Gentile, we're not, we're not changing the literal... You're still the same sex you are, you've always been. You're still the same race, you're still the same. But it's in Christ positionally that you have this new identity. We've got to be clear on that. All right. So then he starts cataloging these advantages. Who are Israelites? Who are Israelites? Now, that's, that's a political identity, not a well, it's racial. They are Jewish, but they are in a political nation called Israel. Regardless of their tribe, they are part of the nation of Israel. We'll discuss the commonwealth of Israel, the polity of Israel, when we get to that vocabulary. Who are Israelites? And, and this was a feature, of course, in the first century that ended in 70 A.D. They lost their independent nation in 70 A.D., there was no more polity. There was no more governance as the nation of Israel after 70 A.D., not up until 1947. Okay? I mean, seriously. It was 47, right? Or 48? 48? I'm always getting that wrong. Okay. 1948. You have to correct me about 50 more times. And Man. All right. So from 70 A.D. to 1948, there were no Israelites. There were still Jews, okay, because you can have an ethnicity without a nationality. There were still Jews, but they were not Israelites. So there's the advantage. To whom belongs the adoption as sons? That's not church-age adoption. It's a different adoption. We studied that when we talked about election. There's a church election. There's an Israel election. They were the chosen people. There's uh, the church adoption. There's Israel's adoption. Out of Egypt I will call my son. And he brought them out of their bondage of Egypt as his adopted nation. The glory. The Shekinah glory. What Gentile nations had that? The cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and the Shekinah glory residing within the, the Holy of Holies in the capital city of Jerusalem. No Gentile nation had the glory. The church today doesn't have the Shekinah glory. Remember that when the glory departed and Ezekiel saw it depart, and he saw it depart from Babylon, um, it's, uh, it was, and it's never returned, by the way. That Shekinah never returned. Even though they, they, they went back, they built a new temple, it didn't have an ark and it didn't have the glory. And the covenants. And the covenants. What Gentile nation had the covenants? None of them. Israel had all of them. And by the way, if you try to tell me that the church is under some of the covenants somewhere, somehow, explain that verse to me. 
Because this verse says the covenants belong to Israel, the Israelites, the ones who had the glory in the covenants and the giving of the law. A lot of times we lump those together because we call it the Mosaic Covenant. But this verse, and I think also in Ephesians 2, I think it's probably smarter to separate the covenants from the giving of the law. Because the covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic, and New, were all unconditional, eternal covenants. Mosaic law was conditional and temporary. Mosaic law was conditional and temporary. And even though we call it the Mosaic Covenant, I think this verse gives us reason to distinguish between the covenants and the giving of the law. But no Gentiles were given the law. No Gentiles had the dietary restrictions or the clothing restrictions or the marital restrictions or anything that was given as under the law. They function according to conscience, according to the moral law of God, according to um, the standard that they had prior to Abraham in, uh, in the Gentile expectations there. Also, the temple services. Were the Gentiles given any temple services? You know, and they had observances. They did things. That, uh, you had Melchizedek, the priest king of, of uh, Jerusalem, and he clearly must have had some kind of services with his priesthood. And you had uh, Jethro, the priest of Midian. You had Job offering animal sacrifices. You had Noah offering animal sacrifices. They had some kind of services but it wasn't the temple services patterned after the heavenly temple built with the blueprints that God revealed and certainly didn't have the Shekinah glory dwelling within. So whatever services they had, the Gentiles did not have the Jewish temple services. And this is why, again, it's, it's, it's bizarre in my mind that um, in, the, in the early church history, the Roman church felt so... Uh, needful. Why did they want to have a, a liturgical calendar? Why did they want to have a year with seasons? You know, like uh, we're in Lent, by the way. Did you notice that? Why are we in Lent right now? What what is Lent? It's a made-up thing that's not in the Bible. But in the early centuries of the Christian Church, the Roman Church wanted to have something that wasn't theirs. The uh, temple services. And that would include the, the whole calendar from Pentecost to, to uh, from Passover to Pentecost to trumpets to atonement. The whole season of, of Jewish sacrifices and feasts and all of that was for Israel. It was never given to any Gentile nation and it was never given to the church. The New Testament never commands us to observe Lent or Easter or Christmas or anything. We have day after day, as long as it's called today, to walk in the newness of life. We can appreciate that. The temple service and the promises. And the promises. And they had promises of a coming Christ. They had promises of a future kingdom. They had uh, promises of blessing the Gentiles. Because through you all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed. They had uh, promises of land, seed, and blessing. They had promises that uh, weren't given to the Gentiles. Weren't given to the church. We have different promises. We have different blessings enacted on a better sacrifice. We have uh, a better promise. How about, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The promises in this context are the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whose are the fathers? Okay. Again, we're talking about advantages. 
And so they had their fathers. They had Judah and Levi and Simeon and all the tribal fathers. And then they had, of course, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the patriarchs of the Jewish nation. None of those apply to the church. We don't have any of those. Well, I mean, we, we, we call some of these guys the early church fathers. And even that label, I think, is problematic. Even that label, I think, was the early Roman and Orthodox churches, I think, trying to adapt something that could be analogous to Israel and their fathers. Because Israel had fathers. Oh, we better get some fathers. So let's, let's go ahead and sign up uh, Irenaeus and, and Tertullian and, and Chrysostom and whoever else we want to call fathers. So we can have fathers too. Why do we need those fathers? We have God the Father. Okay? Anyway. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? There's only one Christ, and he's Jewish. None of the Gentiles got a Christ. None of the Gentiles got a Christ. But the Hebrews did. So here's their advantage. According to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. So here's the catalog. And we can view these as advantages and disadvantages. I, I'm, not, I'm not critical of that uh, language. I think it's fitting, uh, depending on you know, the reading of Romans 3. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. What is the benefit of circumcision? There is an advantage. There is a benefit. So I'm, I'm not really objecting to that language. But I just don't want to carry that language so far then when we start looking at these things in Ephesians 2, then we start calling them problems. Because they're not problems. They're not deficiencies to be remedied. They're not, uh, it's, it's not like spiritual death is remedied by spiritual life. Not like that at all. These, these are features, and they're not remedied. They're actually just irrelevant. By making Gentiles no longer Gentiles, and by making Jews no longer Jews, and by creating one new man, a new creation now that is in Christ, making the two into one new man. It's not remedying those problems, it's creating something new, whereby those previous issues are irrelevant. They're, they're, they're not at all applicable in any sense for the body of Christ. Either way. Jew or Gentile. Either way, male or female. Either way, bond or free. Okay? That's what we're going to see. So, uh, the first one of these. Separate from Christ. In the Greek it says, Choris Christu. Choris Christu. Back up here. Separate. Choris. From Christ. In the Greek it's Choris Christu. So, apart from Apart from Christless, if you want to use the, keep using the less uh, suffix like we have for hopeless and godless, then you can use Christless for uh, for this one, uh, Messiahless. Uh, the only issue I have with the idea of separate is that to me, frequently in English, separate can convey um, a spatial distance. So if I'm separated from an estranged loved one or something, there's, there could be some geographic space. There could be some distance between us. And, and really, I think the distance is not what's being stressed here. It's the identification. It's the fact that we just don't possess any Christ. No Gentile possessed any, any Messiah. 
because the Messiah was Jewish. So uh, no Gentile ethnos had a Messiah. And we can prove that again. We just saw it in Romans 9.5, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. There was only one promised Messiah ever given. And if you think about it, when the word becomes flesh, the act of incarnation, the act of, of a physical human birth, means that you've got you know, physical parents there that are going to convey the, uh, the ethnicity that, that they're born with. Okay? I mean, it just is what it is. And so, one Christ, the Word becomes flesh, and one Christ is born. He can't be every ethnicity in the world. All he can be is, he came to his own, and his own received him not. He's Jewish as the promised seed of Abraham, seed of Judah, seed of David, and uh, the stipulations that, that come there. So, is that a problem? Is it a problem for a Gentile to be to, to not have a Christ? Did, did, did Uriah, was Uriah hindered from getting saved because God did not send a Hittite Messiah? Not for a minute. Not for a minute. Or any other Gentile believer from the Old Testament you want to point to, none of them had a Gentile Messiah. It's not a problem to be remedied. It's a feature of what it used to be. So that's the first one. No Gentile ethnos had a Messiah. And so some of these things, too, I think are, are very helpful for us, um, especially since race is such a hot-button issue and all the, the God-haters want to... They find different ways to try to pit humanity against humanity, and skin color does that, or, or race does that, or whatever else does that. And so it's, um, it's just sad. Um, and when you have the biblical orientation to biblical anthropology... When you understand we're all descended from Adam, we all are in Adam, and uh, the issue is, are you saved or are you lost? That's the only distinction that we have anymore, is are you in Adam or are you in Christ? All right, the second uh, description here, alienated from the polity of Israel. Alienated from the polity of Israel. And I'm using the word polity, I might change that, the the political uh, establishment, the political um, structure the political body. So uh, the word for alienated, and I didn't really want to get bogged down in some of this, so I didn't pull up Strong's numbers. I'm not doing word studies uh, where it says excluded with a footnote of alienated. You can see it there. So Strong's number, if you really want it, is number 526. And uh, ap triomenoi. There's a handful for you. Okay. Uh, alienated, I think, is better than excluded. You can bring up a word study and look at this. Um, and you can see the different words that uh, that are a part of this. Alos is another. Yeah, so many compounds. Three New Testament usages. Two in Ephesians and one in Colossians. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll get into that in Ephesians 4, where as unbelievers you are darkened in your understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So that'll be a, a spiritual walk passage we'll look at in Ephesians 4. And uh, Colossians 1.21, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So whatever the case may be, my suspicion is they had a different team translating Colossians than they had translating Ephesians. 
perhaps. And editors should uh, keep those things from being translated in different ways like that. Alienated from the commonwealth. What's the commonwealth? The politeia. The politeia. Speaking of a political entity. Okay, a political entity. And you might say, oh, well, it's just a, it's a legal fiction. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that we agree to by convention, by, well, yes and no. It is intangible, it is, but it is a political entity that exists as long as God lets it exist. It has a beginning and it has an end. It has a variety of, of borders and, and, and territory. I think polity is a good expression or political identity. The two uses that we have in the New Testament include this in Ephesians 2 and also Acts 22:28, when uh, the centurion was, was, was stunned that Paul had Roman citizenship and he answered, the commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, I was actually born a citizen. And so there was a difference there in how they became Roman citizens. Paul's parents were Roman citizens, so he was born a Roman citizen. The Roman commander had to purchase his. So that gives us our, our concept for what this citizenship is dealing with. And why is that important? Because God functions on the basis of marriage, family, and nations. Citizenship is a feature of the laws of divine establishment. That's why Satan hates it so much. Why he's trying to erase borders and put everybody in a, in a common family of mankind, a family of humanity. We're, we're citizens of the world. We're global citizens serving uh, Mother Earth and worshiping Gaia and whatever else we're doing in, uh, in the UN agenda uh, for moving forward. But the polity of Israel, the political body of the nation of Israel, that's who they were. So, when we get saved, do we get Jewish citizenship? Are we, are we granted a passport to the, the modern state of Israel? Okay, clearly not. But, and, and remember, for most of those years, there was no nation state of Israel. For the most of the church age. So, um, alienated from the policy of Israel. So, now what does it mean to be an alien? What does it mean to, I mean, you might be a resident alien, you might be a sojourner, and Mosaic Law had provision for that. That you could live there, you could raise a family there, you could function as a Gentile, but you had to observe everything Jewish, which meant you were going to observe the Sabbath. Okay? If you were going to take part in Passover, you better be circumcised. Okay, So following their laws, while you are an alien, now does that give you... Uh, a vote. They didn't have votes. Actually, they did. They had tribal votes and clan votes. I don't expect that the alien Gentiles had a vote in the in the clans and tribes and families that they were dwelling in. You know, it's uh, again, it's our terms are so lost and confused right now that um, the idea that that um, non-citizens should be afforded a vote. Is, is, is just a, it, it defies common sense. It defies what, what, what is a political body? What is a citizenship? What is a citizenry? And, and the privileges of voting for the citizens, it's, uh, I think there's a, a tremendous uh, confusion and Satan is sowing at every chance he can get. Okay? Wanting to be entitled to things that you're not entitled to because you don't have that position. 
You know, I, all my travels, I never thought, never crossed my mind. You know, in all the countries I've ever been in, I never crossed my mind to try to vote in those countries or try to tell them what to do or try to, you know, assert my uh, some kind of rights. You know, I'm, I'm there as an alien and a stranger, and, and they could kick me out any time, and, and uh, I'm just visiting, and, and you've got to be aware of that. In fact, the military just made you... They, they, they put you through these courses, too, that, you know, you want to represent your country. You want to have a positive example. And don't be the, don't be the loud, obnoxious American, uh, you know, in, in these countries they send you to. Things like that. So, anyway, we did our best. Alienated. Apa. So, it's Apa la triumenoi teis politeas tu Israel. Keep in mind, every Gentile ethos, ethnos, ooh, misspelled that, every Gentile ethnos had their own God-given politeia. So the idea that it was, it was a bad thing for Uriah to be a Hittite, or the idea that, that some, you know, David had, I was going to look this up the other day too, he had some Ammonites among his mighty men. Uh, there were Edomites that got saved, okay? Whatever your, your politeia is, God is in charge of that. And, and not that long ago, we spent a lot of time in Genesis chapter 10. And when they got off the ark and God divided humanity, these are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies. What are those? Those are the lineal descents. Okay? By their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. This is God's wisdom and God's design. You know, fences make good neighbors. Borders make good national neighbors. There's, there's benefits to identifying what is us and what is not us. Okay? And you do it at every level. You do it as, a, as an individual in volition. You know that I am I and you are you and, and, and I don't have authority over your volition. We learn within marriage that my wife is my wife and not your wife, and, and, and we have a, 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 uh, ownership. We have proprietary interest and concern and provision within the boundaries of, of our marriage. If someone tries to jump into that or tries to assert some kind of a... No. It's pro, and family as well. In raising family, there's the boundaries of that family. And I don't tell you how to raise your kids, and you don't tell me how to raise my kids. This is our, this is our realm. You know, and if a kid shows up, am I obligated to feed him? Okay? I probably will if he's a friend of my kid. But, you know, or if he eats too much, I'll send him back to his parents. Okay? But then at the national level, why do we think we can just cross borders and go live in another land and just assume that we belong there and we have rights and privileges and we can just start functioning like, like, uh, like this is where we belong? Okay? We don't do that with family. We don't do that with marriage. Nationalism. I mean, God was so genius in designing these divisions for humanity. And Genesis 10 is a big part of that. I'm going to run out of time here. I do want, before you go, here's something to think about. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8. And, um, again, it's a time to remember. The Jews weren't picked at, picked out because they were so godly. They were actually a bunch of knuckleheads and hard, hard of heart. 
O foolish and unwise people. He has made you. He has established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. In other words, have a dispensational framework and understand where you are in the plan of God. Ask your father. He will inform you. Your elders, they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Israel is not the only nation with an inheritance. All of them. Every nation has an inheritance. When he separated the sons of man and he set the boundaries of the people. You know? I mean, even before there was humanity, even before Adam and Eve, he designed the earth, he planted a garden, he sent the rivers. He said, all right, this is Eden, this is Havilah, this is Cush. Why were those lands different? They had different resources and different uh, uh, provisions of wealth. He separated the sons of man. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number. And there's a manuscript issue here. The, the Masoretic text says, according to the B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel, the better manuscripts, the Septuagint, and other unamended Hebrew manuscripts say B'nai Ha'elohim, the sons of God. According to the number of the sons of God. And all of the nations, those are angels, all of the nations have an angelic supervisor that, uh, that are there to oversee and learn from and uh, issues like that. Anyway, the point being, he gave the nations their inheritance. Egypt got the land of Egypt. And God didn't give Egypt to Israel. In fact, the border for Israel was the great river, Euphrates, to the river of Egypt. And on the other side of that river wasn't Israel. It was Egypt. God has a reason for all these things. So, um, we'll pick up here Wednesday night because we got to deal with the covenants, we got to deal with the hope, we got to deal with the national hope, we got to deal with uh, all the rest of these features of Gentile humanity, features of Jewish humanity, and then the reality of the church, which is a whole new creation. doesn't remedy any of these features. Create something entirely new. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for truth. Thank you for opening our eyes to appreciate what we've been given, to whom much is given shall much be required. And I thank you, Father, for the present church age in which we live. I thank you that you're, in your mercy, this age has lingered longer than I would have allowed it to linger, Father. But you are not slow. You're patient. You desire for all to come to repentance. I pray that we might be effective evangelists with each day of grace you provide. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do have a 30-minute...